Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Vanity Fair's Inside the Hive, where we are going deep on Fox and the right-wing media machine. I'm Brian Stelter. On this week's show, Fox's rivals on the right. There are dozens of Fox wannabes. And right now, in the wake of Tucker Carlson's firing, Fox is feeling the pressure. Pressure from the likes of Newsmax. And maybe also from Twitter, too. So joining me to discuss all of that and more are Vanity Fair staff writer Kayla B. Karma and Amanda Carpenter, a writer at The Bulwark and the author of what I think is one of the seminal books of the Trump era, titled Gaslighting America, Why We Love It When Trump Lies to Us. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thanks. Amanda, how do you explain the Republican Party and the right wing's media ecosystem? Like, where do you place Fox within it? Then how do you explain the Newsmaxes and the One American News? All these brands we're going to talk about that exist sometimes to the right of Fox. How do you explain this world in 2023? Well, it's complicated. I mean, Fox is certainly still at the top of the hierarchy, but it is constantly under threat of being knocked off by its competitors, which is something that even the Fox executives recognize as shown in the Dominion lawsuit. I mean, this is not a secret, but it's not just a media story, but what it means to be a Republican in the state of turmoil. And, you know, when I step back and look at it, It's the weird dynamic of if you're in this space, you're at war against everybody in that space, Mm. which is very different. You know, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, liberals that cover the media that look at this and sort of think it's all unified. Everybody is for Trump or against the liberals. Yeah, there is some of that. But there's constant infighting, constant purity tests, constant positioning about who is going to be the toughest, the strongest, the best fighter on any given issue. And so it's this this state of, you know, battle and chaos, which is, you know, why you look at some of the leaders of this in this, you know, sort of fringe space. It's not surprising that Steve Bannon's podcast is named The War Room because they are constantly at war with themselves. (laughs) That's so interesting. Caleb, tell us more about The War Room. Tell us more about Bannon's operation, because that's an example of this pressure that that Fox comes under from the right. Yeah, I mean, I think The War Room is a really interesting example because it does have this very devoted cult following. You know, I remember being at CPAC a few weeks ago talking to, you know, some influential Trump world people and they all look up to Bannon as like 
I guess, a father figure of the movement and sort of this genius. You know, he's he's sort of the kingmaker that they admire. So it's not just to show that, you know, people who are really into it, lay people who are really into it uh, in terms of conservative politics watch. It's also to show that, you know, people who are in the know watch on the right. So mm. it, it actually has not only a big audience, but a very important one. And the thing about something like The War Room with, you know, Bannon's, uh, you know, populist, uh, anti-globalist vision of the world and his, you know, COVID conspiracy theories and all of that, it it couldn't really have existed 10 years ago. Well, tell me if I'm wrong, Amanda. It, it, 10 years ago when, you know, you were, you were working for, uh, for Ted Cruz, you know, were there outlets like The War Room? Were there, you know, like these live streamers, these podcasters, these YouTube stars? They didn't really exist the way they do now, did they? Well, they were, but they were talk radio. They didn't have a video podcast and they weren't as easily accessible nationwide. Um, you know, when I was in the cruise office, Steve Bannon was uh, working with his website at the time, hadn't really gone into this market yet, but he did begin to set the pace on like, you know, random issues, like kind of like free trade issues. This is the beginning of the anti-globalist type movement. And so that was sort of something. But I think what the big difference is, is that someone like Steve Bannon or Alex Jones or, you know, pick whatever right wing like pod streamer type you want, Nick Fuentes, et cetera, they don't need the biggest audience. Like they're not going for the biggest market share. They're going for the most devoted, mm. the most cultish kind of audience. And that's really where the influence comes into play. Not every Republican is listening to the war room or Alex Jones, but it sort of seeps into the culture. Like you saw this really with COVID, right? Um, when COVID first hit the thing, I think a lot of people were mostly on board, you know, uh, receptive to the vaccines. But once these, you know, influencers on the right started floating the conspiracies about how the vaccines are bad, that seeped into the culture for anyone that was sort of, you know, in the periphery of these broadcasts, but they had a devoted cultish following who was very influential, um, you know, in their family groups, in their communities, et cetera. Mm. I, I've described Fox News as like the beating heart of the GOP, pushing out, you know, blood to all these other organs, all these other parts of the body, all these other limbs. But I wonder if that's still true today. Does that still feel accurate? Uh, I, honestly, I think that it might be the opposite. You know, uh, in a lot of ways, when you look at Tucker Carlson, I mean, what he was doing was very novel uh, on cable TV. But really, you know, he had all these really young producers who were on 4chan, who were on, you know, these different messaging boards who were following, you know, sort of weird offbeat websites to kind of pick up these stories and then laser in on them and give them this huge spotlight. Mm. And suddenly Fox has this new know, everyone thinks that they're doing something special when in reality, they're just sort of getting the runoff of things that have kind of been worked through on other smaller publications and other smaller podcasts. Right. This is the theory that, you know, something starts in the kind of the swamps, for lack of a better term, of the right wing web and then finally makes its way up to Fox. Uh, Amanda, I saw you nodding your head at Caleb. Yeah, well, I think the departure, that flip that you both described really was marked with the d death and departure of Roger Ailes. I mean, he was a political operator. He is someone who sort of understood how to play the various factions against each other, but then keep them unified towards a goal without dipping into the crazy. I mean, for all his flaws, he was talented and skilled at that as a political operator and media leader. Once he was gone, 
you know, it was my observation that a lot of the executives didn't know exactly what to do. And so that at that point, you know, people like Tucker Carlson coming in, those are the people that really took their cues from that cultish, devoted following on the internet to develop their own audience because they could sort of like, you know, I think it started slowly kind of giving a wink and a nod to the things that they knew these influencers were saying. But now I think that wink and nod is just a perfect symbiotic relationship. And that's how they show to each other, the signaling to each other that like, you know, I'm on the same team. And you see people say this, like, well, I listen to Tucker. I don't watch the morning shows. They're saying, oh yeah, I, you know, I know that he's doing the replacement theory stuff. I go get where he's going on this. Ukraine, you name it. Tucker has always been the leader on this. And no doubt he has a background with a daily caller watching this kind of stuff. He's no stranger to it. And he's also incorporated writers into his show who come from those kinds of backgrounds. And so this has all been very obvious to me. And so you know, now that Tucker's not there, I'm not sure what direction they're going to go. The after hour, Hannity has always just been a party guy, but really hasn't been a leader and an influencer uh, from the right in the way that Tucker was. We'll be right back with more of Vanity Fair's Inside the Hive. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, the New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's talk about Carlson, his firing. I mean, look, originally we set out here in April to talk about the Dominion trial. Then it was the Dominion settlement. Then it was Carlson's firing. And it's it's caused a real change in this entire landscape that we are talking about. And so we do, as, as you mentioned, Amanda, we have seen in the Dominion filings uh, what happened in 2020, Fox's fear of Newsmax, fear of competitors coming up. But then that subsided and, and Fox once again was dominant. We're now back in that same uh, turbulent water where Newsmax is benefiting from the Fox audience's uh, uh, disappointment about Tucker being fired. Caleb, how much have you tracked that? How would you describe what's happened in the past few weeks with the ratings uh, uh, dynamic? Yeah, I think it's going to take a little while for that seat uh, to be filled and settled, you know, to a point where the the viewers are back on track with it and and on board. But um, I don't know. I mean, Tucker Carlson, he he was a pretty skilled orator on television and he was a good, you know, he had a good delivery. He felt like he was sort of natural at that position. Um, and I can't say the same for, you know, anyone else that they've tried to put in prime time over the years, uh, recently at least. So I don't know. I think this, this change, it might be permanent. It might not be in terms of the ratings over at Newsmax, sort of these you mean people the leaving. Shift, yeah. Right, the yeah. audience shift. I mean, I think we have to kind of wait and see because, you know, we saw that huge spike Newsmax uh, experience post-2020 election. And some of that did stick, but, you know, some people just went back to Fox because, I mean, the production is just so much better. You know, it, it, mm. Newsmax, it's like, even Trump has complained about that privately, you know, in the Daily Beast reports about how he, 
he likes Newsmax, but it just looks so terrible that it's tough for him to watch. Same thing for uh, One American News. Oh, I don't think it's that. There's bad, a limit. But I don't think it's that, but but yes, there is clearly a difference, <laughs> right? Fox is the varsity team. Mm-hmm. Newsmax is still the junior varsity, and you know a bunch of former Fox uh, personalities are on Newsmax, like Greta Van Susteren and Eric Bowling. You know, Bowling's one of those guys that's really benefited from the Carlson audience going looking for something new. But let let's stay on Newsmax for a moment because. You know, yeah, there's there's dozens of these kind of Fox wannabes, these more fringe outlets, web streams and YouTube channels and podcasts. And we've touched on a couple of those. There's a lot more of them. But Newsmax is a little bit different and a little bit unique because it is on cable, at least in many, not all homes, but in a lot of homes right next to Fox or, or CNN. It's in the same neighborhood. It's relatively easy to find compared to, you know, some of this other uh, stuff that's out there. So, Amanda, how do you describe what Newsmax is and what it's doing? How, how do we put this into context? I mean, for listeners who don't know, you know, this is, you know, run by Chris Ruddy, who used to be a Clinton confidant, is, you know, is a Trump buddy, is hanging out with him in South Florida. But there have been times where he's maybe tried to moderate the channel. There's been other times where he, he, he went for the right. I don't know. I mean, we could fill a whole book about it. But how do you describe that dynamic? Well, it's very. I, I think first we should recognize how much Newsmax is really just trying to imitate Fox, which speaks to the market dominance that Fox has had. And you know, if you were flipping channels, you would even be like, if you didn't see what the network was, you might think like, oh, this is like a fuzzy version of Fox, right. like maybe like a local broadcaster of it. <laughs> and so Fox, I mean, they have the advantage, and they will for the foreseeable future when it comes to two things. That is the real estate. They're in all these people's homes. People are used to tuning into them. They will have them on for the entire day and not turn it back. And the production value, which Caleb talked about, like it does have that gloss. There is a finishing touch that comes with having producers, the lighting. It just looks right. Like once you look at it, it looks more credible. But what will be the difference? And I don't know if Newsmax can do it. And I don't know if Fox is going to do it. It has to come with the leadership and the influence you know, right-leading conservative Republican voters are looking for a couple things going into the 2024 election. Mm. Um, one, affirmation of values. Like, these people are sort of on my team. They agree with me. But also leadership And when it comes to sorting out, you know, really sticky, hard choices that will come in the next few years. Like, there will be a choice, Trump or DeSantis. There'll be more choices. How do you get more people on board with Trump if he does become the nominee again? And so that is going to be a fight. There's no way of knowing how that's going to go. That's when these networks have to think on their feet. Um, There's going to be careers made, uh, destroyed in that process, as with every big political cycle. But those are the contrasts I see going ahead. Do you see any other outlets like Newsmax that are as poised to capitalize on this moment? Not right now, but I wouldn't expect that to be so because with every big presidential cycle, there is a new media voice or outlet that sort of emerges, mm. right? Like we saw that with, you know, just Twitter as a platform um, in the last couple of elections, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, we've seen, you know, different networks change their positioning. And so that will happen again. There's no way of knowing how that's going to go because it's such a reactive process. Mm. Caleb, what about you? What other kind of brands or outlets or channels are you keeping an eye on? Uh, I mean, I think the Daily Wire is always one to keep an eye on. It's just grown so much since 2016. If you look at the Apple's podcast download charts, they're always got three or four shows right up there at the top. Uh, you know, they have this huge 
kind of crazy vision, honestly, of building, I don't know if you guys saw the Bloomberg piece, I believe it was about the building the Disney for the right. Um, so they're kind of venturing off into entertainment. So they have a lot of cash to burn. You know, I mean, they're, they're making movies. And even in terms of production, I mean, it is, it is very good for an online, you know, streaming setup. And they have talent that uh, a lot of conservative voters and just conservative in general are attracted to and drawn to. So first and foremost, Ben Shapiro, but then others, they're, they're basically building out more podcasts and more webcasts, right? Yeah, it's, it's like, uh, you know, every time there's sort of someone on the waiver wire, they try and pick him up. I mean, they tried to get Steven Crowder, obviously, you know, that sort of ended in a disaster. But, um, you know, they did get Candace Owens, uh, you know, then they got Matt Walsh. So they've been building this roster for years now. And I think it, they're going to continue to do that model. And the people that heard the name Steven Crowder and heard about this clash he had with the Daily Wire, there was this alleged deal, this offer of $50 million for far-right YouTuber Steven Crowder to come over uh, to join the Daily Wire. And a lot of people read or heard that and said, $50 million? Like, how, how is this possible? How, how do you explain that? I mean, how is there so much money in this world? Yes, fifty million for four years. I mean, that's like a relief pitcher it. for the Mets. And he said no. I know. I mean, it, it is. Uh, I think they get a lot of money. Um, there's a lot of people investing, you know, in in their venture, but they also have a very big su- subscriber base. So I think they kind of have this Patreon model, but it's built in directly into their system. So they sort of don't have to split that money with a third party, and they're able to kind of rake in a lot of this money from. Uh, dedicated fans they build over the years. And that that's the biggest dynamic I'm watching going ahead in part because um, the bulwark is where I work is built. Um, we're trying to build a subscription model, but I think the biggest dynamic going ahead isn't going to be who is the biggest, baddest, you know, cable news network, but maybe in terms of how does that media landscape get chopped up and divided on a subscription model base Because those are, you know, these devoted followers that make media careers in this highly, you know, fractured media landscape. That's valuable. That's why someone like Steven Crowder can get a $50 million offer, which, by the way, I do think is on the verge of insane. (laughs) But that is where the market is going. Can you build an audience that is loyal to you, thinks you are a credible person, that you can be trusted, and they're not necessarily looking for political balance? Mm. Right. No, definitely not looking for political balance. And and by the way, Amanda, since you mentioned the bulwark, how do you describe where it fits into this media world? (laughs) Well, we were largely built by uh, never Trumpers who were sidelined from our traditional conservative Republican jobs and outlets. And so we've come together and really uh, found success building an audience. We're on Substack now. What we do is try to just deal with the messiness as it comes. Mm. I, I don't think there's any shying away from that. We're out front about, you know, what our political beliefs are, et cetera. But we acknowledge that this is this is going to be rough ahead. Is the bulwark part of the right wing media? Do you think about it that way? Oh, no, I don't. I wouldn't position ourselves now. We are right leaning. But there is, you know, as I talk about what it means to be a Republican these days, everybody's at war with one another. And if you're a never Trumper, as I've been since 2016, uh, there's been a lot of people at war with me since then. (laughs) I mean, this is just it it is part of the story. Mm. Um, And I think, you know, as much as sometimes I'd like to take myself out of it, um, this is going to be the story for the next few years. Mm. 
And we're going to keep seeing, in, in my mind, we're going to keep seeing new brands emerge as some of these old ones struggle and suffer and fade away. I mean, at the end of the day, it is Tucker Carlson and Ben Shapiro and a, a few other big, basically, TV or podcast stars who seem to have the most power within the, you know, Donald Trump, you know, type Republican Party. So I think we should go a little deeper on Tucker and Twitter, right? He announced he's going to relaunch a version of his Fox show on Twitter. He did not set a launch date. Um, I viewed the Twitter announcement mostly as a shot across the bow toward Fox to pressure Fox into uh, letting him out of his contract. Um, But, you know, there are reports that uh, the Twitter show could launch uh, later this month. Maybe it's going to launch by the time this podcast episode's out. Who knows? Caleb, is there an end game? Is there an what do you do you see an end to this Tucker chapter? And if so, what is it? <laughs> He's not going to stay on Twitter forever, is he? Yeah, I I don't know. I don't I don't really get this one. I mean, aside from the Elon Musk connection, <laughs> which is its own thing, Twitter's not made for video. I mean, the, the the video play on Twitter is awful. It messes up all the time. I've never watched a video on Twitter that lasted more than three minutes, probably. So having an hour long show on Twitter is just I don't know. It just seems one of the most ill-sided things I could possibly imagine. I I don't don't get it. I really don't. Amanda, do you get it? I mean, Tucker has to do something, and that's the easiest thing to sort of grab. I mean, even though he made his announcement video there, he could do another announcement and say, my product is going to be over here. But I do agree with Caleb. It is completely crazy. I mean, just for the sheer fact, even if you agree with Elon's politics 100%, which, you know, he's been crazy lately, would you trust your professional video career on that platform as it is right now? I would say no, because it's so erratic. It's constantly being changed right now. They roll out new features uh, all the time. It is not a stable platform mm. at this moment for any career, um, let alone trying to do a video product. And so it was strange to me that we're going to do the same show. I agree, you can't do an hour. It would have to be formatted differently or broken up. And so I don't see this going anywhere, um, but it, it is a way to buy time for Tucker, whether as a negotiating tactic or just to reassure his audience that I have plans. Mm, right, that his his free speech will not be silenced. Uh, <laughs> I, there was an interesting quote in a Semaphore article last week about this, referring to, you know, the idea of Twitter as a television experience, as a video experience, because you're right, Caleb, right now it's not built for that. And Semaphore quoted a former Twitter employee saying, it's doom scrolling versus doom staying, right? People do doom scroll on Twitter. You scroll reading all the bad news and all the terrible memes. But people don't doom stay. You don't stay and watch something. Uh, and, and I think that that is true. I don't, maybe could, could that change in a year? Maybe. But uh, yeah, I don't view Twitter as a long-term home for Carlson. I view it as a short-term solution to a, uh, a legal problem he has, you know, needing leverage over Fox. And it will allow him to, uh, to you know, go viral whenever he has that desire. Caleb, do you think that the Tucker announcement, of course, which Musk came out and said, well, we don't have a deal. This is not a special deal. This is just, <laughs> he's just like anybody else on the platform. And then Musk tweeted at Don Lemon, formerly of CNN, to ask Don to think about doing a show also. It's not going to happen. Um, but but this idea that uh, Tucker and Twitter, is is Twitter going to increasingly be identified as a right-wing website, a right-wing social network? Yeah, I mean, I, that's definitely happening. Uh, there was a poll that came out recently that showed it had, uh, I think, an 11-point bump in terms of favorability among Republicans. So Republicans <laughs> are identifying more and more with Twitter uh, as as a you know allied site, which is interesting because before Musk bought it, I think it was seen as the most liberal of the so- big social media websites. 
With the Tucker situation, I think it's important to remember that Elon Musk was forced to buy this. He was forced to buy Twitter by a judge. I know, we forget that part, don't uh, we? Right. And so now it's like he's admitted that it's valued at less than half of the $44 billion he paid for it. And he's got to figure something out. And everyone's watching videos, right? People are on TikTok, YouTube Shorts, all these things that are driving traffic. So I guess we're going to try videos now. Twitter's going to be everything and nothing, according to Elon Musk, because every week he's coming out with a pronouncement of a drastic change the platform will make. And oftentimes they, they do favor conservatives. He seems to be listening to all these conservative followers asking him, why isn't this working on the site? Am I being shadow banned? And he's just responding to them constantly saying, I'm looking into it. I'm working on this. Um, and that's in between you know, him sort of having constant dialogue with users like CatTurd2 about um, the state of politics in America. Can you explain to people who, who are blissfully unaware of what <laughs> CatTurd2 means? Can you explain that? Yeah, he's uh, a popular... I guess, conservative internet celebrity. Trump shouted him out at a rally a few months ago, and Elon Musk seems to value his opinion highly. Was there a cat turd one? Uh, we're looking into it. Okay. And Amanda, he's not the only one. You can learn a lot about Musk's brain just from who he replies to on Twitter. Yeah, I think he recently replied to Laura Loomer, who is a you know, well-known conspiracy theorist um, that... I think most people are familiar with her, but I, Who I think once chained herself to the door of Twitter to protest Twitter's banning yes. or suspending or punishing her, but now has the ear of the owner of Twitter. Yes, correct. And so I, I think more broadly, it is interesting to think that Elon wants or thinks it's a possibility to be in the business of uh, video platform creation. He wants to be a content creator. I mean, really thinking that he can reach out to Don Lemon and Tucker Carlson and somehow people of all political perspectives will feel welcome to put their content on this platform while he openly cultivates a culture of harassment, conspiracy mongering, and, you know, abuse in many ways. And so I think, you know, he, he seems to have this idea that he can just create these things and everyone will want to use Mm. them because they'll be so great. Media is different. Media is different because you cannot divorce it from the culture. And the culture that he is actively creating on Twitter is only welcoming to a certain kind of right-wing conservative like Tucker Carlson. Mm. It's not welcoming um, to many other people, just, just in terms of the harassment and conspiracy mongering and the abuse that gets piled up on people. Mm. Musk kind of lost me a little bit when he sowed doubts about the Paul Pelosi attack, and he he tweeted out a link to uh, some you know crazy website, like one of these uh, you know actually fake news sites where you know it, it it has made up articles trying to trick people or make them feel better. You know, it was a website that says that Hillary Clinton's dead and there's a body double, and you know he, he links to one of these, these disinformation sites um, in order to make himself feel better because he, he knows the truth about the Pelosi attack and like. Those episodes have happened so many times now that it's very clear who he is or where he stands. Well, and just yesterday, he tweeted that George Soros hates humanity. Now, listen, it is okay to have political disagreements and how George Soros has funded certain district attorneys. You can have that debate. I don't think it's necessarily wise to do it in public platform when you're a media executive. Um, But to say that someone hates humanity 
And he was asked about this on CNBC. Yes, uh, David Faber interviewed him earlier this week, asked about, you know, when you tweet all this stuff, when you choose to mouth off about all these topics, it can hurt your businesses. And then Musk had this like 12-second pause before he answered. We're not going to play the whole pause, but here is what Musk said in response. I'll say what I want to say, and if, 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 uh, if the consequence of that is losing money, so be it. Okay. Well, I guess, Amanda, that's easy to say when you're either the richest or one of the richest men in the world. He's not worried about losing money. Yeah, he can say that. I mean, it definitely is his right. That is his free speech right to say. But if you want to be in the business of attracting creators and attracting people to your platform to go out and say, you know, this person hates humanity because he pulled my stock and I disagree with his politics, you are creating a culture that is not inviting towards civil debate. Mm, right. He's not saying, hey, uh, George Soros, come uh, host a show on Twitter with uh, Tucker Carlson and have a civil dialogue. Uh, not that Soros would do that. Um, you know, the ADL's reaction to this Soros episode was to say, look, what Elon Musk is doing will embolden extremists. And, and Caleb, I think th- th- that's an interesting word, extremist, that what we can see happen, what we're able to see now with the owner of Twitter is a form of, tell me if you disagree, Radicalization. We can see how it happens based on who he's replying to, what he's reading, what memes he's posting. Seems to me he is going further down a rabbit hole. Yeah, I mean, he's always been incredibly eccentric. Uh, and I think he has sort of become uh, kind of a slave to his own algorithm in a lot of ways. I mean, he's a slave to his own algorithm. Tell me about that. Yeah, it's, you know, he's, he's following this feedback loop. Um, where you know he's replying to more right-wing users and more right-wing users seeing, seeing his posts. And uh, thus, Twitter likely is feeding him more and more conservative users. So he's just kind of going down in the spiral and getting into crazier and crazier things. I mean, he's sort of obsessed with like the white birth rate. That's been something that he's you know talked about a lot uh, over the past few months, which is a huge thing on sort of the, I don't know, trad or populist right. Everything from that, from like, his stuff on COVID vaccines, and he kind of flirts with a lot of it, uh, and then some of it he says outright, as in uh, you know the case with uh, George Soros. But um, you know, I think he's in the deep end at this point. He's, he's he talks about black crime. He's called the media and schools racist against whites and Asians. There's a lot of this. He he also has a real obsession with San Francisco, and uh, and and what are very real problems, but which I think he wildly overstates. I mean, but look, we we go on and on. It's enough to make you want to sign off, right? We'll be right back with Vanity Fair's Inside the Hive in just a moment. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. 
Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. Amanda, you and I were both formerly uh, of CNN. I wanted to get your reaction to the CNN town hall with Trump because uh, more than a week later, it is still uh, what the chattering classes are chattering about. There's still fallout at CNN uh, about that town hall. And there is still this larger question about whether, you know, where CNN fits into the media landscape. We're talking here about outlets further to the right of Fox, but you've got Lachlan Murdoch this week criticizing CNN for having a town hall with Trump, the head of Fox Corporation, ridiculing <laughs> CNN for the town hall with Trump. I mean, this is something I did not imagine a couple of years ago when I was at CNN. Yeah, that is sort of a wild dynamic. <laughs> I think going into it, you know, I was one of those people that sort of dreaded watching it because of so many flashbacks from 2016. But, and you saw what, why it was a bad decision literally in the first 10 minutes. It had nothing to do with Caitlin Collins' handling of it is that Donald Trump went right in on the 2020 election conspiracies from the get-go, which was to be expected. What did they think was going to happen? What did they think was going to happen when you did that? When I watched this, my feeling leading up to it, and I think was confirmed after it, was that this is just a sweetener, an entree to Donald Trump to say, you know what, please let us be part of the 2024 political process. Please let us be a part of that because we know that's where the ratings come in. Those are big, big nights. And if you can't get the top Republican contenders to recognize you as a legitimate outlet, they may not like you. You might cause fights for ratings. If you can't be a part of that process, you are losing Mm. out. So this just read to me as a giant sweetener. And I think that was really revealed by the fact that it was stacked with Republicans in the audience. CNN has done previous town halls, like with Bernie Sanders, but it wasn't just with, you know, socialists or independent-leaning Democrats. This was a political event designed to help Donald Trump feel like he could go to CNN for the next couple Mm. of years, right? This wasn't like a nonpartisan thing. And the only people, the people that attended it, they're self-selecting, even among Republicans. In New Hampshire, critical primary state, these people are going to have a lot of influence over the political process. When CNN goes to Donald Trump and says, we are going to get an audience of Republicans, most likely who already voted for you, to hear you out and you can make your case for an hour, that is a wonderful opportunity for him. Mm. And I I don't think you can defend doing that seven months away from the first primary contest. And so that's why I read it as an opening gesture to Trump. Um, I don't think he's deserving of that gesture. And I think that was revealed literally in the first two minutes. And we will find out now if if uh, it backfired or not, you know, if, if it worked the way it was maybe intended, if it didn't, if CNN holds more town halls and interviews with Trump or not, and also if other networks do. You know, there was interesting reporting by CNBC this week that, you know, NBC had been maybe having talks with Trump's team about some sort of event, but now after CNN, they're not so sure they're going to do it. Uh, so th- there may be some unintended consequences of the CNN town hall that have yet to reveal themselves. Caleb, your take? Um, Well, there are some consequences that have already materialized and that, you know, CNN's ratings are now have been now surpassed by Newsmax. Uh, They had one bad day last (laughs) Friday. Uh, You know, I don't want to make too much of that. We'll see. Certainly. Yeah, I I wouldn't make too much of it either, but I thought that was interesting. Um, I mean, honestly, after the backlash to the CNN thing, I don't see, I mean, maybe because it's network television, it's a different thing, but 
uh, NBC, I feel like they'd be playing with fire if they were to do a, a similar situation. Although, I mean, I guess they they could try and uh, manage the audience a little bit differently. I don't know, add more audience questions from people who are actually uh, independent, whatever that means in 2023. Uh, so there are, I guess there's other avenues that they could take, but based off of, you know, the past what week and a half of discourse, I think they might stay clear for at least a little while. I still think we're we're back to the uh, John Mulaney, I think it was 2017 joke about Trump being a horse loose in the hospital. Uh, you know, and, and there's this horse running around the hospital causing chaos. And sometimes he's not doing damage, but other times he is. And everyone's just so preoccupied watching this horse running through the ICU. And you know, people can be mad at the hospital, but, you know, people can take it out on the nurses, but it's really about the horse. Like at the end of the day, uh, the issue is the horse. Um, so. But does the horse, and I think this is, you know, the takeaway I took from Donald Trump through 2016 and 2020 is that this is a person that does not deserve live news coverage, mm-hmm. right? Given the damage that we saw from January 6th, and maybe a Republican debate is different. Um, interviews are different where you can have a clip or at least edited for contacts, a little bit of pushback. You can show clips, but to give Donald Trump, given the fact that he has glorified political violence, right? There's no getting around that. To give him the political gift of a live, supportive audience where he really is free to say whatever he likes um, because it is impossible to fact check someone who just spews lies in a torrent. You you have to stop it every 30 seconds. And I, I commend Caitlin Collins. She did the best job a person could. And that is exceptional, given that this is a man who has lived his life in public and on television. And she's only been doing this for a few years. You're not going to get any better than that. But to give him the political gift of a supportive audience and a live camera is a tremendous mistake, in my opinion. Mm. Amanda Carpenter, Caleb Akarma, thank you both for the conversation today. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was Vanity Fair staff writer Caleb E. Karma. You can find his work on VanityFair.com. And joining us from The Bulwark, Amanda Carpenter. You can find her at TheBulwark.com. This episode was produced by Michael May. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. And we had engineering assistance from Gabe Caroga, Jake Loomis, and mixing by Bob Mallory. I'm Brian Stelter. You can find me on Twitter at Brian Stelter. Yes, I am still on there, as I said. Uh, You can also subscribe to our newsletter at VanityFair.com backslash newsletters. And we'll be back in your podcast feed next week. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, 
premiering on Hulu on May 9th.